0: Hello, everybody, and welcome yet again to another episode of the Nailed It Ortho Podcast. My name is Dr. Wendell Cole. Some people call me Cody, some people call me Cole, some people call me Wendell. Whatever you want to call me, it is completely fine. Myself and Dr. Fitz started this podcast to go over high yield orthopedic surgery topics, and you are now tuned in to yet another episode of the Nailed It Ortho Podcast. Now, please let us know. We have been doing a lot of new things lately. We just started off with our Citation classics. We put out a couple episodes, and please give us some feedback on those. Let us know what you like, how you like them. Um, we would just love to hear you all's thoughts on that. And let me kind of get into the topic of today. We actually have a great episode. We're talking about UCL tears of the elbow, ulnar collateral ligament tears of the elbow. And again, this was a really great episode. We have uh, Doctor Brandon Erickson who's going to come and talk to us about uh, these UCL tears and a little bit more about dr erickson he did his residency at rush university medical center in chicago he then did a sports medicine fellowship at the hospital for special surgery Uh, he served as one of the team physicians for the new york mets and he also played some football when he was at Notre dame Uh, he was actually a wide receiver and we talk about UCL injuries. We talk about the anatomy. We talk about the physical exam maneuvers. We talk about the treatment, how to uh, fix these non-operative management as well as operative management. And if you haven't already, please go and check out the YouTube channel. The link to that is in the description. He has some great videos that go along with this uh, that you could see a lot of the physical exam maneuvers. We talk about operative treatment so you could actually see some of the uh, some of the clinical pictures that go along with this. So if you don't know if this is your first time listening to this podcast, we have a video that accompanies almost every single audio podcast. And, you know, if, that's, if you want to take a look at the x-rays, uh, if you're more of a visual learner, or if you're at home, I mean, I, I really would recommend checking out the YouTube video as well uh, if you just want a little bit more of experience. But for those of you that are driving, we also try to explain things very well in the audio format. Format. So without further ado, I hope you all enjoy this episode on UCL Tears with Dr. Erickson. You are now listening to Nailed It, the orthopedic surgery podcast featuring Drs. Jay Fitz and Wendell Cole. Dr. Erickson, welcome to the Nailed It Ortho podcast. Uh, We are happy to have you on. So, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Really appreciate you giving me the chance to come on. Yeah. And I think this may be the first sports elbow talk we have had. We've had close to almost, um, I think at least 80 to 90, you know, interviews where we've had other physicians on, but I think this is our first sports elbow. So uh, I'm looking forward to it because I'm actually going to sports. So uh, I'm looking forward to uh, this talk. Oh, nice. Do you know, uh, you know, where you want to go for fellowship yet or what you're thinking about? Not one hundred percent sure. We're going through the interview process as we speak. I had my first one literally two three days ago, um, and you know they're all going pretty well so far, and I have a good amount of interviews left. So uh, we'll see towards the end of this trail. Um, I guess what's calling my name, or you know where the where the match is. I'll tell you, it's a it's a fun process. Honestly, there's a ton of good sports fellowships around. Um, can't
1: go wrong you'll get to learn from some really good attendings wherever you decide to go Um, elbow gets a little bit more specialized because there's some places that do a little bit more of it than others so depending on what you you know want to go
0: into you can decide what you think is the best fit yeah and that being said what you know we we, we certainly start off asking a couple of questions getting to our guests and and what kind of drove you into the you know into the sports um arena i know you went to hss and uh so what kind of made you want to go to you know sports yeah. I mean, I'd
1: say, you know, I had the same story that a lot of, uh, orthopedic residents had, you know, went to college, played college football. Uh, my junior year was in a bad collision, had an open fracture dislocation of my ankle. Um, that got fixed. So that kind of drove me towards orthopedics and, and sports medicine in general, and just being a former athlete and, and enjoying taking care of and working with athletes. Um, it's a great patient population because, they pretty much all want to get better. And so it's your uh, job to get them back. So it's, it's high expectations by the patient, but a very high reward when they do well. So I think that was kind of what drove me towards it.
0: Yep. And those are some of the same things that I like. <laughs> so yeah. Uh, <laughs> and uh, another question is, you know, sometimes we have a, we actually have a decent amount of fellows that actually listen to our, um, to our show and some chief residents. So uh, looking back on it, any advice that you would you know give yourself or a fellow that's about to start practice or trying to figure out where they're going to go at? Um, any advice for somebody in kind of that stage of their career? Yeah, so I would tell you that, you know, once you match for fellowship in your
1: fourth year, um, your resume doesn't change all that much. I mean, you may add a few publications here and there. You'll have some new mentors that can help you uh, with job search. But I would recommend, you know, when you get into that fourth, fifth year, start looking for jobs. If you know the location you want to be in, Uh, start putting some feelers out there, um, ask around, see who's hiring, who might you know, might be hiring, might not be, or maybe, you know, one year off of where you're going to be there. And because if you get to them early and you let them know that, that you want to be in a specific place, uh, sometimes they'll wait a year to hire if you're going to be available um, or different opportunities can pop up that way. So I think that's, that's super important. And then just for me, from a learning perspective, you know, I started this when I was early in residency of kind of writing down the um, steps to the case afterwards, uh, depending on which attending I worked with. So I would kind of try to write down the, Pearls of each attending, and I kind of kept through, kept doing that through, you know, my sports rotation uh, at Rush when I was a chief, and then also in, in fellowship. So I have a bunch of different ways to do different procedures, and I'll still reference that um, not infrequently. You know, going back to things, maybe you haven't done a lot of them, you know, that particular year, and you want to remember how one of your mentors did it. Um, it's a good reference to have. Um,
0: you can always contact your mentors, but if you've written it down, it actually is much easier. Uh yeah, I've started to do that. You know, you don't realize. You know, some of these things, uh, at least with me, figuring out that uh, that residency is going to be ending pretty soon and you're going to have to figure out how to do these on your own. And you like go back and you think, oh, man, how did he, what, how did he, like, what position was that in when he actually, you know, did that procedure, did that step. So now I've noticed I'm, I'm trying to write down everything. No, I can you're
1: you're exactly right. Cause you think you're going to remember it, but honestly, you don't, even, even if you, it seems so obvious to you at the time, you very rarely remember
0: it. So it's important to just jot it down. Yeah, and last question I have for you is: Do you have any interest outside of the field of orthopedics? Sure, Um,
1: really like to cook. Um, Really like to watch movies. I think those are my two biggest interests. Obviously, still love watching football and and sports and things like that. But other things outside of the orthopedic sports realm um, for me, it's it's cooking and uh, and movies. We just also had a a baby, so I have a ten month old uh, daughter. You may or may not
0: hear on this podcast at some point. Uh, (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) So uh, she's sleeping currently, but we'll see now ah, well congrats i recently just watched the uh the spider-man movie which is pretty awesome oh, <laughs> i nice. haven't seen that yet i have <laughs> I'm not, not i'm very movie. much looking forward to that i love the marvel movies oh yeah it was it was great but um anyways kind of transitioning to the topic of the day we're going to talk a little about about ucl tears in the elbow on collateral uh ligament tears and kind of in general um why why is this important or kind of who gets these uh who gets these injuries like why is this even a thing
1: yeah, I mean, it really wasn't a thing before 10 or 15 years ago, in the sense that not a lot of people knew about them. It was a very select group. And it was usually in, you know, major league baseball players. Um, over the last 10 or 15 years, as we've seen more and more kids start to specialize in sports, they're starting to throw in an earlier age. They're kind of single sports specializing in baseball. We've started to see a lot of these tears happening in younger and younger athletes. Um, you know, if you look at some of the, the work that we've done looking at this, you can see over the years that the number of UCL tears has dramatically increased. And so this is in major league baseball players, but the bigger concern was kind of like I talked about the increase in the younger athletes. So in that 15 to 19 year old age range, not only are the absolute number of tears going up, but the incidence is going up significantly. So it's it's kind of a big problem. Um, we do see it in some gymnasts. We do see it in javelin throwers. Um, so that can be relevant. Uh, but for the most part, this is a baseball overhead throwing athlete injury.
0: Yeah, and I saw you know that again is you know it's very common in um, you know uh, baseball pitchers, and it was a, an article that you wrote actually that, had, that talked a little bit about the difference between. That it's less common in football quarterbacks, which I thought, uh, which I thought was interesting compared to like you know javelin throwers and um, and, and and pitchers per se. Um, so yeah. yeah, go for
1: it. The uh, no, you're absolutely right. So the, the throwing mechanism is so much different between a uh, football quarterback and a baseball uh, pitcher. Um, you're exactly right. So a lot of quarterbacks have had these injuries, and honestly, they do just fine without surgery most of the time.
0: Yeah, and and that being said um you know say you know you have a patient that comes in into your office an 18 year old uh right hand dominant you know college freshman pitcher for i don't know alabama so i know you're you don't work in the south but say alabama for example well, i went to notre dame so we'll call it notre dame <laughs> <laughs> he went to notre dame uh he's been a pitcher all his life hasn't had any uh, prior elbow injuries Uh, And then he started to say that he's just had kind of just some right elbow pain after he just threw uh, a pitch. He doesn't remember if he really warmed up or much that day. And now, you know, he's having pain during the acceleration phase of throwing. Can you actually we can we can take a step back. Can we rewind and can you can we go through kind of the phases of throwing? Because I think that's probably an important part to understanding, um, you know, kind of these throwing mechanics, uh, especially with UCL tears.
1: Yeah. The, the phases of throwing are super important. you are talking about shoulder and elbow injuries and overhead athletes. And you know, we kind of break it down into six phases. So you start with the wind up, then you go into kind of the early cocking phase, move into the late cocking phase, acceleration, deceleration, and follow through. And the phases are kind of broken down based on foot position and shoulder and elbow position. So you can see when you go into that wind up phase, you transition from the wind up to the early cocking phase, um, kind of when you are front foot uh, starts to hit the ground, and then you start to progress through max external rotation in your um, shoulder, and then you start to move forward in the acceleration phase, ball releases obviously when you let the ball go, and then your body tries to decelerate your arm. And so when you're talking about UCL injuries, You really put the most stress on the medial side of the elbow during that late cocking, early acceleration phase uh, of the throwing cycle. This is when the inside of the elbow sees the most stress. If you have pain more in that early cocking phase, you start thinking about shoulder issues and the deceleration and follow through phase can sometimes be latissimus injuries. Um, But if you're talking late cocking, early acceleration for the elbow, it's generally UCL for the shoulder. It can sometimes be internal impingement in that time.
0: Yeah. And so, say for example, you know, this patient, they come to your clinic. And you know they're there in your office. What is the conversation that you have like with them? So like you know when you're doing a history physical exam, what are you what are you asking them? What are what are some of the important things that we need to figure out? Yeah, I think it's always important to see what some of the risk factors are that they may have had for having a, a
1: throwing injury. You know, how many innings are they throwing that year? Are they keeping track of their pitch counts? Are they pitching on multiple teams and are just pitching uh, to their heart's content, or are they kind of staying? Um, true to what the MLB Pitch Smart guidelines have put out in an attempt to, to decrease their shoulder uh, and elbow injury risk. Now, you also wanna know if they've had any elbow injuries in the past, right? So certainly having a prior injury will increase your risk of having an injury down the road. Um, have they had any you know, surgeries on the elbow in the past, um, any type of um, fractures when they were a kid? Do they have a you know, little leaguer's elbow? Do they have a piece of their meat condyle when they were younger uh, and were either treated with or without surgery? going forward. The other thing you want to know from a history perspective in these guys is one, how long has it been going on for? Right. So did it just start yesterday and they came to see you was it an acute injury. So were they throwing and they felt a pop or is this something that just started to happen over time? And then what's been going on with their velocity and their accuracy had their velocity and their accuracy started to go down a little bit. And that's not always the best thing, uh, for an elbow, because when that starts to dip, we worry a lot about the UCL.
0: Yeah. And what, what, um, part does the overall kind of kinetic chain for example uh play like you know a play what role does that play as far as you know in regards with the elbow and and different mechanics and what and and in that and those sort of things
1: yeah, so that's that's a great question because that's something we've started to study a lot more recently. And what we've started to see is that while the, the elbow is usually the end point of what happens uh, in the throwing motion from an injury perspective, it oftentimes starts very much upstream from that. So if you take a look at these pictures here, we did a study looking at kind of how um, fatigue affects uh, throwing mechanics and baseball players. And what you can see here on, on slide A is that these, these pictures are taken both at the same exact time point and slide A was taken in quote the first inning of our simulated game and slide B was taken in uh, the quote the sixth inning of our simulated game and what we did was we had these kids throw and we watched their hip to shoulder separation here amongst uh, some other kinematic parameters and what you can see is at front foot contact which is where both of these slides are taken they're taken at the exact same time during the pitching cycle you can see in slide A that when their foot hits the ground their hips are pointing towards home plate and their shoulder on their throwing side is pointing towards third base, right? So this is a right-handed thrower. Now, if you take the same time frame in slide B, what you notice is that their shoulder is much further in, it's turned in much more. And so rather than being able to generate a lot of force through their hips and trunk and pelvis, they're putting a lot more stress on their shoulder and elbow to generate the same amount of force that they're trying to put through the ball. So if you have a problem with your hip rotation, if you have a problem with your trunk rotation um, or your shoulder rotation, it puts a lot more stress on your elbow or your shoulder if it's a uh, pelvis or thoracic problem. Um, so you want to try to to minimize stress on the shoulder and elbow by maximizing all of those other kinematic parameters.
0: Yeah, I think that's such an uh, important thing to to note and to realize that it's just not only the elbow, but you know there are other things that are are going on with this with this patient. You know, uh, you know, is there hip rotation? How's their core strength? Their shoulder strength? That it's not just that one joint, kind of like. Um, reminds me when you hear um, about about trauma patients and there being the obvious open injury and forgetting to examine the rest of the patient yeah. something similar with you know with the elbow and these UCL injuries. Well that's just it because if I fix their UCL tear but we haven't fixed the mechanical problem that gave them the UCL tear, what's to say they're not going to tear down the road? right right and just to just to summarize some of the things that you were talking about, As to uh, that, we want to note on the physically, not not on the physical exam, on the history when we're talking to them is, um, you know, what are their pinch counts? um, Like how often are they pitching? Are they pitching with multiple teams? Have they had a change in their velocity of their pitch, which may be the only thing that sometimes these patients uh, complain about? And, you know, also is when, it, if there's any other loss of hip rotation, you know, some other risk factors for uh, having these UCL injuries. Now say, you know, say they've came, they've come to your office, you've asked them all these questions. They said, yeah, doc, I've noticed, you know, it wasn't really an acute, well, wasn't an acute event actually with this patient. Um, so that being said, what is your, what does your physical exam um, look like for these patients or are there, or how do you examine them?
1: Yeah. So if you will start kind of focused on, a, on an elbow exam, just for sake of time in the podcast, you do want to, examine their shoulder motion you do want to examine their hip motion but we'll kind of focus just on the elbow for for the purposes of this podcast and so you want to start out just like any other exam. So you want to inspect them right do they have any swelling is there any bruising present around the elbow even in an acute traumatic ucl tear, usually you don't see much in the way of any swelling at the elbow so there shouldn't be much swelling or bruising that you see then you take them through a range of motion so you check their flexion extension and then their pronation and supination and what you'll see in guys that have been pitching for a long time is that sometimes they'll lose a little bit of their elbow extension and that's often because there's a small osteophyte that forms posteriorly in their elbow. And that can sometimes happen if the UCL has gotten a little lax over time. It allows the olecranon to bang into the olecranon fossa and it creates a little extra bone. But that may not be causing their problem right now. It can just be a secondary thing that you find in their exam. But I would encourage you when you're examining a pitcher, really check their extension and check it side to side because you may notice a subtle difference side to side. So once you've checked their motion, then you want to go through your palpation portion of the exam. You want to palpate over their medial epicondyle. You want to palpate across or along the length of the UCL down to the sublime tubercle. And then you want to start to do some of the more uh, UCL-specific tests. You want to do a moving valgus stress test. You want to do a milking maneuver. So this is kind of what the moving valgus stress test looks like, where you're basically imparting a valgus stress to their elbow as you're having them bend and straighten and this is what a milking maneuver looks like where you grab their thumb with your same hand and you again, put a valve of stress on the elbow. The other thing that it's important to check for in these guys uh, who have elbow problems the pitchers is their ulnar nerve. So one, you wanna make sure that they don't have any ulnar nerve symptoms so you can do a Tinel's at the elbow and tap along their ulnar nerve. And then you also wanna have them flex and extend their elbow to see if their ulnar nerve subluxates. We know this is normal uh, in 10 to 15% of the population, but sometimes in an overhead athlete, this can become a problem. This might be completely separate from your ulnar nerve issue, but you should note this, especially if you're gonna have operate on these guys you have to know where the nerve is sitting when you go in for surgery uh, so that you don't have a problem with accidentally damaging the nerve there's also what you can get is a little triceps uh, snapping around the elbow so even though it may look like the ulnar nerve is subluxating part of that can sometimes be the tricep snapping and as you get more comfortable with doing an elbow exam you'll be able to easily tell the difference between the two but don't just always assume that something snapping over the inside of the elbow is the ulnar nerve um, those
0: are kind of the main points for for the ucl exam okay so just to rewind, so when we're doing kind of this moving valgus stress test, we have their arm in the position of, like kind of in that cock position. So their shoulder is abducted, externally rotated, and it's kind of like they're about to throw a pit somewhat. And you are applying a valgus stress um, to the elbow and taking it from flexion to extension. And that motion, if that reproduces pain, that that is gonna be a positive uh, exam, correct? Correct. So basically you're using, if, it,
1: if it's a right elbow that you're examining, you take your right hand and put it up against their right hand with their arm at the 90-90 position. You put your left hand on the, backs, on the lateral side of their elbow to make a backstop for you. And then you have them flex and extend their elbow. And usually around the 50 to 90 or 120 degree range is where you'll start to have pain with this test.
0: And so what's the main difference between the moving valgus stress test and the milking maneuver? Yeah, not much. They're both just trying to put a valgus stress <laughs> on the elbow. <laughs> yeah, okay. And uh, just to, again, summarize, you know, you check their range of motion. You want to make sure that they can fully extend because if not, you know, they may have those, you know, those posterior osteophytes may be present. Um, and, you know, the, the, the continued, if that had to continue to happen, that could be something that clues you in towards maybe valgus extension overload, but you want to check their range of motion, flexion, pronation. Uh, I'm sorry. Flexion, extension, pronation, supination. You want to um, palpate. So palpate all around the elbow, uh, and then you also want to do your your specific exams, which is a moving valgus stress test, a milking maneuver, and a valgus stress test. Now, you, of course, you also said you want to examine the shoulder. So when you examine the shoulder, we, you know we take maybe a minute or two um, to discuss it. But so in all these patients, are you also examining the core, like having them do a a single leg squat and then also doing a shoulder. And if you are, how do you examine the core? And then how do you, or I guess, how do you examine that kinetic chain if you do so? And then what what exactly do you look for on the shoulder? Are you looking for GERD and rotation or what exactly are you looking for?
1: So I'd like to tell you that I have time to examine the core and everybody, but the bottom (laughs) of I I don't know. And it's just, it's honestly just the the truth of, of what it's like to try to see, you know, 50 patients in a day in the office. Um, it's very hard to do, uh, as much of the exam as you'd like. So you have to try to get the best bang for your buck when you're doing it. So for me, I check their hip range of motion, specifically their internal rotation on their landing leg, right? So if they're a right-handed pitcher, I want to check the internal rotation on their left hip, because that's how you have, that's where you have to rotate over, uh, to make sure you get the proper rotation through that. So that's what I'm checking right off the bat um, from a shoulder perspective, I want to look at their total arc of motion, right? We, we always get focused on internal rotation and internal rotation is important, but the the more important thing now is total arc of motion. So you want to have about 180 degrees of total arc of motion. So if somebody has 130 degrees of external rotation, you don't really expect them to have 90 degrees of internal rotation. As long as they're getting to about 50 degrees, your total arc of motion has been maintained. And so that's, what's really important. So I'll lay them down on their back, usually to check their shoulder motion, And I'll also show them how to do a sleeper stretch very quickly while I do that, just to help them increase their internal rotation a little bit. You just have to remember that there's more that goes into internal rotation than just the tight posterior capsule. Um, we know now that there's a little bit of retroversion to the humerus that a lot of these guys who've been throwing at an early age start to develop, and so that can contribute to the the increase in external rotation and decrease in internal rotation. So some of these guys can, can you know kind of beat their heads against the wall trying to get more internal rotation, but that may not
0: happen because they are their humerus is basically shaped differently. Right, and just to reiterate or or again summarize what you're just saying is that you want to check your total arc of motion because in our patients that are throwers, they kind of have this compens- compensatory increase in external rotation relative to internal rotation. So uh, compared with their non-throwing shoulders. So they may have less internal rotation, but their total arc of motion between uh, external and internal may be the same between both shoulders. So if you have a loss of total arc of motion, that is something that um, that you need to, that, you know, like, that may be detrimental. Right. And so, what are some other things quickly that may be on your differential diagnosis? And then what do you get as far as imaging is concerned?
1: Yeah. So I think always, you know, diagnosis to consider in, um, in guys who have medial elbow pain, certainly the medial epicondyle. Also, can you potentially have a little bit of little leaguer's elbow or medial epicondylitis, um, such as a golfer's elbow or, or, you know, medial papasitis like you have in, um, uh in little leaguer's elbow can the ulnar nerve be the problem can you have an osteochondral injury uh potentially a flexor pronator injury where you can have a tear in that area those are kind of the main things that you think about uh, from the inside of the elbow and then from a uh, imaging perspective everybody who comes into my office gets three views of their elbow so we get an ap an oblique and a lateral view and generally what you're looking for is just to make sure that there's no chronic changes that you see here or there's no um a medial epicondyle fracture or, or avulsion of the medial epicondyle piece in somebody who's skeletally immature. Um, what you can see sometimes in throwers who have chronic UCL tears is you can see this kind of enthesophyte that forms off of the sublime tubercle here. It almost looks like a little horn, um, and that can be causing some of their problem and giving an idea that they've had a chronic UCL injury, or you can sometimes see a fragment or an ossification within the ulnar collateral ligament, which oftentimes means this is a more chronic injury.
0: Do you ever get stressed because reading and just, you know, just reading and preparing for this sometimes and need- you Um, Some articles noted getting stress radiographs. Do you ever get stress radiographs and try to see if there's any gapping or is that just typically more for the books? I generally don't. Um, You certainly can. Uh,
1: What we've actually seen a little bit more useful is the stress ultrasound, which has become a little bit more uh, useful over time. And we'll get, you want to talk about some advanced imaging now?
0: Yeah, let's go for it.
1: Yeah. So, you know, for me um, and somebody who comes in who either has failed the course of non-operative treatment um, or continues to have discomfort as a, you know, higher level athlete, sometimes we'll get an MRI on their elbow and you can argue whether or not to get an MRI or an MR arthrogram. Um, The MR arthrogram can sometimes be beneficial if you don't have a very good quality MRI. If you have a good quality MRI, you oftentimes don't need the MR arthrogram. Uh, That's my kind of advanced imaging of choice. But there have been uh, people who've done the stress ultrasound, which basically will take the elbow and put a valve of stress on it and look at the amount of gapping that you see medially. And we have kind of some normative values with some studies that uh, Mike Sakati or Rothman's done over time. Um, so that can be a, an additional piece of imaging to get.
0: Okay. Okay. That sounds good. So again, you're getting your, of course, you're getting your um, x-ray films. So you're getting AP lateral oblique. You're assessing to see if there's any fractures, any medial. Uh, medial uh, epicondyle fractures. Again, you can also note for any calcifications or ossification in the of the UCL tendon, which may clue you in towards um, towards you know an injury. And then also you can get a, a stress uh, uh, ultrasound, and you can also get an MRI. And on MRI, you know you're looking at a T2 signal, and you're looking to see you know you should have a nice kind of black line where the UCL is, but you're looking to see if there's any fluid or disruption that or um, if there's any fluid that goes through it, which in that case, we would note that you have a complete tear versus if you see some fluid um, uh, inside of the, uh, the, the, the ligament itself, it could show you some kind of degenerate degeneration or you could also diagnose a partial tear uh, with an MRI. And we've been talking a lot about the, the UCL, but we have we have not necessarily talked about just the basic anatomy of it. Can you take us through some, of the anatomy behind uh, the UCL and, and what we need to know and kind of its function. Yeah, so the UCL
1: uh, you know, really was described back in the 80s by uh, Bernie Mori from Mayo. And basically what it is, is it's the primary restraint to, you know, valgus stress at the elbow between about 30 to 120 degrees of elbow flexion. At full extension and full flexion, you have some bony restraints uh, that help you out, but kind of in that mid range is where the UCL really does most of its work. And the UCL, as we know, is made up of three bundles. There's an anterior, posterior, and a transverse bundle. The transverse bundle is essentially non-functional because it doesn't cross the joint. Um, But the anterior and the posterior bundle are are really where we see most most of the work here. And of the two, the anterior is the much more important bundle and it's actually been divided into an anterior and a posterior band. So now if you just kind of go, just the anterior bundle has two parts, anterior and posterior band. And they kind of function in reciprocal fashion. So when the elbow is extended, the anterior band is tighter and the posterior band is looser. When the elbow is flexed, the anterior band is looser and the posterior band is tighter. And so they function reciprocally with one another. And when we do a UCL reconstruction, we're trying to recreate the anterior bundle of the UCL. And so that's kind of the basic anatomy behind the UCL. The blood supply is much better proximally than distally. And we think that's why a lot of the partial thickness tears that are proximal do better than the partial thickness tears uh, that are distal when we treat them conservatively.
0: Okay. And so are there really any classifications for this or is it just basically, you know, you just talk about if it's a partial tear, complete tear, or just some, I guess, degeneration of the ligament itself?
1: Yeah, it's a good question. Usually we kind of just go with, is it a partial tear or complete tear? And where is the tear?
0: So is
1: it in the proximal portion of the ligament? Is it in the mid substance of the ligament? Or is it in the distal aspect of the ligament? And again, is it partial or complete? And you can kind of grade these grade one, two, or three for proximal mid substance and distal and A or B as being either partial or complete.
0: So that being said, uh, you know, you just talked about kind of uh, the classification scheme. And again, we know where it is, if it's if it's proximal, mid-substance or distal, and then if it's going to be a partial tear or a complete tear. Now, how what patients undergo non-operative management? And then what is your non-operative management? Like, how do you actually manage these when you talk to them and they're in your clinic?
1: Yeah, so I would tell you this, the majority of patients that I see undergo a trial of non-operative management. If they're, they don't necessarily even have to be a a lower level athlete. Some of the high level athletes, we try to treat them conservatively at the start because we know that actually a a lot of these guys can get back successfully from non-operative treatment. Um, The way I treat them conservatively is when I see them in the office, if I think they have a UCL tear, um, and I don't think it's one that's a full thickness tear. I'll shut them down for somewhere between four to six weeks. No throwing. They'll start a physical therapy program of working on their shoulder motion, their hip motion. And when their elbow doesn't hurt, starting a flexor flexor pronator strengthening program. And then I'll see them back in the office in four to six weeks and I'll re-examine them. And if the tests that I saw that I did when I saw them initially, like the moving valgus stress test, the milky maneuver, et cetera, are no longer positive then I'll let them start a return to throwing program. If they're still hurting with those tests, then I get an MRI because I want to see how significant the UCL tear is and confirm that it is a UCL tear in general. Um, if they successfully complete the return to throwing program, then they're back to full tilt without any, without any issue. If they try to go through the return to throwing program and they fail to get back, again, then I'll get an MRI on their elbow and look at the UCL closer.
0: Now, let me ask you this, all right? You saw how you I can pick your brains a little. Now, does your management change if you are in season or, you know, preseason or towards the end of the season? Do you, you know, are you trying to get them through the rest of the season? You know, if they have a partial tear or like does your management change at all depending on the timing of this injury in regards to the season? Yeah. So usually by the time they're coming to see me,
1: um, they've had more pain than they can deal with when they're throwing or they're just velocity mm-hmm. and accuracy has been down and they're just not effective. So unlike shoulder dislocations and things like that, where in season management can be a little bit tricky for UCL tears, it's not quite as relevant. Um, what is more relevant is if you think they're going to need surgery When to do that surgery. So, oftentimes, the sooner you get to them, the better from a return to sport perspective and ability to play the next season, because we know after a UCL reconstruction, they're going to miss somewhere between 12 and 18 months. After a UCL repair, they're going to miss somewhere around six to seven months. So, that has to be in the back of your head when you're thinking about how long to treat these guys conservatively. You don't want to go through a four month rehab program with a guy just to have him fail
0: and then need a reconstruction. Then he's out two seasons. Um, So, that has to be in the back of your mind. Now a little bit more about non-op. So, you know, you shut them down for, you know, four or six weeks, get them in the program. Do you, are you giving them an elbow brace at this standpoint? Are you giving them a hinged elbow brace or are they just kind of just flying and are you prescribing any NSAIDs or or anything like that? Yeah. So I generally don't uh, give them a hinged elbow brace. We use that after surgery, but
1: for non-operative treatment, we don't. Uh, And as far as anti-inflammatories, that's more of a, just if they need a type thing for
0: at the counter, I don't do anything specific for this. Okay. And, um, and one more thing, anything about PRP injections? I, I, I saw that there have been some, um, some studies and some papers out there about possibly using PRP and getting good or getting decent results for treating um, you know these partial UCL tears. Do you have any thoughts or can you kind of talk to us a little bit more about PRP or platelet-rich plasma for uh, the treatment of these UCL tears? Yeah, so I
1: I would tell you this. There are a few studies out there on this. Um, There's five or six case studies that are out there that show very good uh, results with the PRP. But the problem with many of these case studies is that they don't have a control group. So while the patients that had PRP did quite well, they did not have a control group of players that had partial thickness tears that did not get PRP but went through the same shutdown program and rehab program. So it's very hard to know how accurate those are, um, whether or not it was the PRP or whether or not it was just time. Uh, we did a study looking at the Major League Baseball database and guys that had UCL tears that were treated and compared the guys that uh, did and did not have PRP. And we basically didn't find any difference in their ability to return to sport. Um, it was about a 54% return to sport rate uh, in those who were treated conservatively who had UCL tears. Um, and there really wasn't a difference between those that had and did not have PRP. So my general thought on this is if you're going to, if you have a player that wants PRP, it's leukocyte rich PRP for me. Um, and this is a discussion that I have with them. I generally tell them, this is something that I can't tell you that's going to help. Um, it's probably not going to hurt, but I'm not sure if it's going to help. It's going to cost, you know, some money to do it. So I can't in all good conscience tell you, you need to have this, but if it's something that you really want, we can certainly do it, but I tend to not
0: use PRP in these guys. Okay. So say, for example, you know, you, you had the patient, you send them through a, um, a throwers, you know, protocol, you send them to therapy, they came back, they still have pain and you get an MRI and it shows that say, for example, they may have a partial thickness tear or a full thickness tear, but any overall, they, they failed non-operative management. Can you take us through some of the surgical options and then how do you choose what surgical option that you're going to do for these patients? Yeah, so let's put all the other stuff, the flexor pronator
1: injuries, the ulnar nerve stuff to the side. So let's talk just about the UCL for a minute. So from a surgical perspective, you have two options. You can repair it or you can reconstruct it. And which one to do is based on a couple of factors. And and Jeff Dugas really has popularized the UCL repair out of Alabama, he's done a great job with this. Um, But when you're deciding whether or not to repair or reconstruct, for me, there's a few things that come into play. One is, where is the tear? Is the tear proximal? Is it distal or is it mid-substance? If it's proximal or distal, we should be able to repair it. If it's mid-substance, I would not try to repair that yet. I don't think that we have any data on that. I don't think that's a great idea. So you want either a proximal or distal injury because what you do is you put an anchor into the bone, you repair the ligament down to the bone, and then you put an internal brace over the top of it to act as a backstop to the ligament while it heals in place. And so you really want to have a proximal or distal injury for that. The other thing is you want to have a relatively high quality tissue UCL. And by that, what I mean is if guys have chronic UCL issues over time, you can start, they can start to become tissue deficient where the UCL starts to just break down over time. So trying to repair the tissue is not a great idea because they're not very good UCL tissue back. Same thing if there's a big, um, loose bi- or a big calcification within the UCL, when you shell that calcification out, there's not a lot of ligament left over. So in that setting, trying to do a UCL repair is not a great idea. So you're really looking for a younger patient that has good quality tissue, with a proximal or a
0: distal injury when you're thinking about doing a repair. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes sense for the repair. And again, so the procedure that you said, when you're doing a repair, you put an anchor in and you're putting an anchor, depending on if it's a proximal tear, you put it proximally around the epicondyl. If it's distally, you put it distally around this insertion on a sublime tubercle. And I I assume you debride, or I guess you can kind of take us through some of the, of how you do that. Yeah. I (laughs) I mean, so, so for me, you know, it's, it's a standard medial elbow incision. And now I, you know,
1: I mentioned the nerve before. The reason I talk about the nerve is if, if the patient's having all the nerve symptoms, then I'm going to transpose their nerve at the time of surgery. If they are not having all the nerve symptoms, then I do not transpose their nerve. This is partially because of the approach that I do. I do a flexor pronator split. If you did a flexor pronator elevation, um, like the guys in Alabama do, then you do transpose the nerve because uh, it's part of the approach that you're doing. So it just depends on, on which approach you use. But for me, I only transpose the nerve in it's symptomatic. So you make your incision, you expose the flexor pronator fascia, and then you wanna make sure that you identify the medial antibrachial cutaneous nerve, um, as this oftentimes crosses the field distal to basically where you are. Uh, and so you wanna just make sure you don't nick this because they can get some numbness in their in their forearm if you do. And so then you make a split in the flexor or fascia and there's usually a very thick white raffae here that you can split. And then you basically spread the muscle fibers down until you get down to the UCL as you can see here. And a lot of times when they have these UCL tears, the superficial portion of the ligament actually looks okay. The injury is oftentimes deep. And so when you make a longitudinal split within the ligament, and then you try to gap the elbow immediately, you will see that it starts to gap, which you really shouldn't see any gapping here. So when you make that longitudinal split and it gaps, you know you're there for the right reason. We knew that before we started the case, but now you can kind of confirm that. And at this point, you really want to assess the tissue and make sure the tissue looks good. If the tissue looks good, then you can go with the repair. And so what you do is you place an anchor, usually a 3-5 anchor, at the site where the tear is. So in this patient, the tear was distal. So we put the anchor distal first, and then we use a high tensile suture to repair the torn portion of the ligament back down to the bone. You make sure you put the elbow in about 60 degrees or so of elbow flexion when you do this with a various stress on it. So you can make sure you tighten down the ligament as best as you can. And then you cut that suture and the repair is done. Then we usually will sew the ligament side to side. So I'll put two or three interrupted stitches in the ligament, simple interrupted stitches, um, as I work my way up proximally to where the second anchor is gonna go. And then I kind of drill and tap for my second anchor and I take the uh, high tensile, internal brace stitches that were loaded into the first anchor, and I load them into the second anchor. And this gets laid down, the internal brace gets laid down over the top of the ligament. And then you put the anchor in, uh, making sure to not over tension the uh, suture tape when you put this in, because if you do, you can constrain the elbow and you can lose their range of motion. So you have to be very careful with that. The other thing is when you're putting that second anchor in, you want to make sure you put that in an isometric point, because if you do not put that in an isometric point, you'll notice that the tape will get loose or tighter as they go through flexion and extension. So what you do is you hold the tape up to the bone and you take the elbow through a range of motion and you make sure that it's isometric. If it's not, you adjust the position of where you're going to put that anchor and that kind of secures it down. And this is what you want to make sure you take the elbow through a full range of motion afterwards. Make sure that tape stays isometric when you take them through a range of motion
0: okay so you're you're not you're not getting the isometric point through like a mini c-arm this is more visual and 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 taking it through a range of motion and making sure that it doesn't loose uh loosen up or anything and for those that are listening to the audio podcast we have a, a good video that you should check out on the youtube channel if you would like to see Um, the approach and some of the pictures in the repair uh, that Dr. Erickson just, just spoke about. So that is UCL repair. And so again, those are, you know, you, you mentioned the patients that, would qualify for a repair. Somebody with a proximal or distal um, tear, uh, with good tendon—not good tendon, good ligament quality—and so for these, I guess, what is your your rehab um, for your UCL repairs? And then after that, we can kind of get into these reconstructions.
1: Yeah. So the UCL repairs usually they're in a splint for the first seven to ten days or so. I see him back in the office. We get out of the splint. And then I put them into a hinge double brace, and they start moving their elbow. You want to get their full motion back by about the four to six week mark. Uh, And then you want to start them in a thrower's tent program somewhere around the three to five week mark with plyometrics starting around six weeks. And then for the internal brace i usually let them start a return to throwing program around the three month mark and this is really where it deviates from our reconstruction because a reconstruction we usually don't start till four and a half months or so so you're a month and a half ahead and starting the throwing program and usually you can progress along the throwing program a little faster after uh, an internal after a ucl repair with an internal
0: brace compared to a reconstruction okay so that is our repair so what patients do you consider for a ucl reconstruction or what are the indications to do a ucl reconstruction and can you kind of talk us through some of the different techniques i know we have some of that kind of the historical techniques that dr joe uh, has spoken about as well as i know there are many new techniques um, but what patients are, are getting a uh, ucl reconstruction versus instead of the repair Yeah, so
1: reconstruction is kind of the gold standard, tried and true technique. So anybody where the tissue quality is not great, a mid-substance tear, um, those that have failed to repair in the past, um, those are really the the reconstruction candidates. And to your point of the different techniques, you're right. There's a lot of different techniques for this. Um, The general, the ones that are most popular nowadays are really the docking technique and the modified job technique. And some of, there's a few differences in these, you know, some of it involves how you treat the flexor pronator mass, whether or not you split it or you elevate it off. And then the other, um, the other technique, technical variation is how you fix the graft really on the um, humeral side. Do you uh, dock it into a socket or do you go figure of a technique where the graft comes out and gets looped over? Um, for me, I use a docking technique. So I, drill a blind ended socket into the humerus and I dock the two ends of the graph there. Um, so that's kind of my, my go-to technique.
0: Okay. And so let's talk about, um, the the techniques a little bit more. So in the original, uh, technique described by Dr. Joe, he does, he did it where he actually took off the, 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 uh, flexor pronator mass and then, and then used an autograph, yeah, typically the palmaris longus, and did it in a figure of eight fashion. Right. And so what is the difference between the original and then the modified job technique? Yeah. So the, the
1: modified job we're kind of the ASMI is a
0: little bit of the modified
1: job uh, technique. So rather than, uh, kind of taking the entire flexor pronator mass off, they just elevated off. Now you still have the same figure of eight technique and he did his, uh, the nerve as a a submuscular transposition now it's obviously done as a subcutaneous transposition we don't generally
0: do submuscular transpositions anymore for primary cases okay and then can you kind of take us through how how this docking works again the the docking technique um you know we have a lot of um residents who sometimes have some medical students that listen in as well but is overall, what is, how does that work? If, if you could say that one more time, remember I watched a video and saw, well, I'll, I'll let you go. And then, I, <laughs> then I'll continue on yeah. with other questions.
1: So, you know, basically it's the same approach as for the repair. You come down, you split the Phyrexopronium mass, you get down to the UCL. Um, then what you want to do is you want to explode, expose the sublime tubercle. And for me, I use that Arthrex V guide um, to drill my tunnel on the ulnar side. Um, and so you drill a tunnel that you then connect uh, and you pass your graft through. Now the graft can be either a palmaris longus autograft, it can be a, a gracilis autograft, it can be an allograft. Generally, you wanna use a palmaris longus autograft because it's usually thick enough and it's readily available, but you have to make sure you examine them preoperatively to make sure that they have a palmaris uh, and that it's not very wimpy. If it looks a little wimpy or they only have a palmaris on one side, I would tell you a lot of times you don't get a great tendon with that. And so you may just wanna go to the gracilis off the bat.
0: But right, regardless so- what you have, go ahead. So so when you're drilling, you know, when you're drilling your tunnel over to, on the subline tubercle, you're you're not these aren't going to be bicortical, you know, things that you're doing with the, the drill bit. You have, you know, one drill bit that may be coming more in the um coronal plane and another one more in the sagittal plane that you try to connect and then that's how you pass it through, correct? It's not like a you're trying so, bicortical, yes. you know.
1: No, no, exactly right. So you can do, you don't, and you don't need the guide necessarily. You can use just a burr to make two holes that are basically a, a centimeter apart. So you want to leave about a centimeter bone bridge, or you can use that, that guy that I just talked to you about where that basically makes a centimeter bone bridge and it has a positive stop on it when you're drilling your three, five hole. Um, no, you're definitely not going by cortical. You just want to basically get through the anterior cortex and, uh, remove enough of the cancellous bones that you can pass the graph without a problem.
0: Okay. So that is, that's, what, that's what we're doing on the on the side of things the sublime tubercle and and then you know you're think you're about to talk about the humeral side of things so what do you do on the on the humorous side right so then you expose the medial epicondyle, and then you'll drill rather than a
1: three five now you're drilling a four five hole and it's usually a 15 millimeter socket that you want to drill Um, You want to make sure that you're not too superficial on the medial epicondyle, you can increase the risk of having a medial epicondyle fracture. Um, It's not a common thing that can happen, but there's been a case series by uh, Dr. Andrews where he had, you know, 15 or so um, late medial epicondyle fractures, not all his, but ones that he treated. Um, in patients that had Tommy John surgery because that, um, that medial epicondyle tunnel was a little bit too superficial. So you drill your blind-ended socket there and then you drill two exit holes just with a 2-0 drill bit and you run some passing stitches out through those that come out through the tunnel uh, and then out through the drill holes that you drilled with your um, 2-0, 2-0 drill bit. And then you take one end of the graft and you dock it, you kind of dunk it into that humeral side, pulling the sutures out that you prepped the graft with through one of your 2-0 holes. And then you hold tension on that so that that part of the graph is bottomed out. Then you lay the other end of the graft on top of the tunnel and you mark where the tunnel starts. Now, you know that you've drilled 15 millimeters, so you want to prepare about 10 millimeters of the graft. And then you do the same thing. Use one of your passing stitches and pass it out the other hole that you drilled. Um, That way you don't accidentally bottom out the graft without full tension on it, because that's obviously a big problem. Very important to make sure you do that. Otherwise you have to take the graft out and prep it again. And that's a huge pain in the butt. So just be very careful when you're doing that. And then when you have everything passed, again, you put the elbow in about 45, 60 degrees or so of flexion. You put a varus stress on the elbow and then you tie uh, the sutures to themselves over a bone bridge on the medial epicondyle, making sure you know where the ulnar nerve is so you don't accidentally catch that with anything.
0: Okay. Yeah, I think I saw you had some good little, uh, some nice pictures of, uh, of one of these techniques here shortly. Yeah, this one. Oh, this, so this is a newer different one. Technique.
1: That- Yeah, this is a different one that we've started, uh, that we've tried, where basically you're docking on both the ulna and the uh, humerus. So this is one that I would tell you we're still working on. Uh, We've done a cadaver study on it. It looks pretty good, um, where basically you dock the graft on the ulnar side, and then you bring it up into the medial condyle and dock it there again, and also augment this with an internal brace to try to basically speed up the rehab of these guys um, but more to come on this over the next few years, because, um, we still need to do some, some studies in patients. We've done the biomechanical stuff. It's submitted to AJSM now. Um, and, and hopefully I'll have some clinical data for you in the next year or two. Cool. This is one that, this is one that
0: Tony Romeo, Dr. Anthony Romeo, um, developed. And so he and I worked on that together. Oh, that's awesome. And, uh, I saw you mentioned at one point, uh, arthroscopy, is there any role for arthroscopy in these injuries? <laughs> Yeah, usually for me, unless you're treating posterior medial impingement.
1: So if you have to debride uh, posterior medial osteophyte, then yes, I'll scope them beforehand. Um, But if I don't do uh, just an elbow arthroscopy just to kind of quote verify that the ligament's torn anymore, I think our imaging uh, our imaging is is good enough now where we don't really need to do that. So for me, it's it's an elbow scope only if there's something that I need to attack in the
0: joint. Okay, and you mentioned graft choices a little bit earlier. We mentioned palmaris longus. You ever use any other type of autographs and, you know if, what if a patient doesn't have a palmaris longus or are you using something else or are you using an allograph or you know
1: what yeah what i go to the gracilis so okay. i you go to the contralateral leg gracilis usually so their landing leg um hamstring is what you want to take so that's generally my go-to and we've we've started kind of majorly baseball team physicians and looked at some injury rates and things like that and it seems like the best thing and we've done kind of a, a an EMG analysis on, on pitchers, hamstrings when they're throwing. So I think the right decision is the, the contralateral or the landing leg gracilis.
0: Okay. And, and what are some of, you know, kind of switching gears, we talked about you know, some of the different, we talked about in, in intensively about the, or extensively about the repair. And then we talked about a couple of the different, Uh, reconstruction techniques. We know there's a lot, but we at least touched on the main job and modified job. It's all docking technique. What are some of the, I guess, outcomes of these different, um, these different reconstructions, you know, kind of to wrap things up here.
1: Yeah. So I'd tell you generally, you know, results are pretty good. So we're somewhere around 80 to 90% return to play rate with the reconstruction with the repair. It's a little bit higher. You know, usually Dugas is reported to kind of in the mid nineties, which is very good. Uh, so I'd say the results are, are very good for the repair and good for the reconstruction. And the reason there's probably a little bit of a dip off there is because the guys that are having the repair are selected out because they're ones with healthier ligaments and oftentimes younger guys who have the reconstruction are sometimes a little bit older. And so they have a ligament that's been beaten up a little more. They probably have more mileage on their elbow leading to other problems. So, um, I would say, you know, right around 80 to 85% is what you're looking at for a reconstruction, um, in these players. And again, usually at about that 12 to 18 month mark.
0: Okay. And is your post-op protocol pretty much the same as, uh, as your repair with the reconstruction? Yeah, same, but delayed. So you don't start your throwing
1: program until, you know, four and a half, five months after a reconstruction, and then you progress through it uh, over the next seven months or so.
0: So when you talk to them, so when you talk with the patients and you're canceling, I guess it's just a, uh, a question, just a general question that you, that you need to know not need to know, but just a general question. So when you're counseling them, when you're talking about, okay, well, you know, it may go in there and if something that we can repair, we'll repair it versus reconstruct it. Um, any counseling that you do regarding return to play? Um You mean in regards to timing or you mean- well, regards- yeah, like in regards to, you know, cause they'll ask, well, doc, how, you know, how long am I gonna be out? When can I get back Yeah. To- Throwing. Yeah, so
1: you know, I haven't so far had to convert to a reconstruction in a player I thought I was going to be able to do a repair in. But in anybody okay. who I'm going to do a repair in, I have a chat with them beforehand, and I say, "Listen, if I go in there and your ligament doesn't look great, then you're going to get a reconstruction because I want to do the right thing for your elbow." And they're all well aware that that's going to be double the amount of time for them to get back, and that would be a really big hit if you have to tell them that. But you have to do the right thing for them. So if it's not something that's repairable, I wouldn't just try to repair it.
0: Yeah, and and one of the last things here. Um, for revision uh, reconstruction, I guess, how often do do these um, fail, and and how often are you are you doing a revision reconstruction, or an, er, are there anything that kind of leads you that to know that oh, this may patient, this patient may be at a higher risk for a, a revision or this this failing?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think there's necessarily a, a risk for them failing. Um, you know, we want to correct their mechanical problems that led to the UCL tear in the first place. So you have to be very diligent about that. Um, guys who play for a longer time obviously have a higher risk of needing a revision just because they're putting more miles on the reconstructed elbow. But I wouldn't say that there's a, a risk factor off the bat that I can tell you about say, oh man, this guy had a reconstruction, but he's probably going to be in line for a revision. And that's good because revisions do not do nearly as well as, as uh, primary reconstructions. I told you the return to sport rates probably 80 to 85% for a primary reconstruction. When it's a revision, it drops down to like 50%. So you gotta be really careful in, in um, counseling guys who you're doing a revision UCL reconstruction on. First of all, the nerve can be a case in scar tissue and then be the results after the
0: reconstruction are just not as good. Okay. And uh, Dr. Erickson, I think this has been a, a great podcast. I and mean, I think we covered a lot. We covered kind of epidemiology. We covered the um, biomechanics of, of throwing shoulder. We talked about who gets Cs. Uh, We talked about the history and physical exam findings, how to do those. We talked about non-operative management. We talked about operative management, you know, repair techniques versus uh, different reconstruction techniques. Uh, Before we wrap up here, is there anything else that you want, you know, the people listening to this podcast to get away and, and know about UCL tears?
1: No, I would tell you this. A lot of these should be treated conservatively to start. Okay. Don't jump the gun in somebody for repair or reconstruction right off the bat. Um, be diligent in your physical exam, uh, and really try to find some therapists uh, that are really good by wherever you're gonna be practicing that understand the throwing athlete and understand how to correct some of the deficiencies that they have. Uh, and when it does come time to do a reconstruction or a repair, you know, really take a good look at your MRIs, really take a good look at the player and see if you think it's somebody that would do well with a repair, if it's somebody that you think might need a reconstruction. But again, oftentimes, you know, better part of 80, 85% of these kids that I see, because I see a lot of younger players uh, who have partial tears, a lot of these guys do quite well with just conservative
0: treatment. So don't jump the gun too fast. Right. Okay. Awesome. Well, Dr. Erickson, yeah, I think this has been an excellent podcast. Uh, I know I'm going to go back and re-listen to a couple things um, and take some notes on it, some more notes than that that I already took. Um, We always, at the end of our podcast, we always give our guests uh, a way for our listeners to reach out or follow you. If you have social media that you want them to follow you on, go for it. If you don't, that's completely fine as well. Uh, Email or anything, um, totally up to you. But if you have something you want people to follow you on, you can go ahead and, and let them know.
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, so my you guys can always email me, it's no problem. Uh, My email is just my first name, Brandon.Erickson at RothmanOrtho.com. So I'm usually pretty good about getting back to you. Um, I'm not as active as I probably should be on social media. I have a you know, just a normal Instagram, you know, Brandon.Erickson.md or or New York Sports Doc. Um, and then one of the I guess one of the things that's been pretty cool, um, that I started to work on recently is actually this, this app called Surgeon, which is um an app basically for surgeons so it's almost kind of like an instagram for surgeons you have to have an mpi number to um
0: to okay. uh
1: have access to it and you can post cases and discuss and things like that so i put some cases up there on uh, the past it's just kind of getting off the ground now it's and they're kind of working through some of the um bugs with it so it's it's a work in progress but it's actually kind of cool um so it's one of the things that that i would say uh that I've been interested in. And then of course we have some, we have some other like references as far as books are concerned, our, our sports related conditions, of the elbow book has a, a lot of stuff on the UCL.
0: So if that interests you certainly um, by all means, take a look at it. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, really cool projects. Definitely want to check those out. Um, especially these books too. Uh, I was like a, you know, a good book or something good to read and be able to reference. Um, but again, Dr. Erickson this has been a great podcast. It's been a pleasure having you on. I uh, really appreciate you taking the time out of your day to come on the podcast. Uh, For those listening, please go and uh, leave a review and let us know how much you enjoyed this episode. If you're listening on iTunes, go leave us a review. If you are uh, watching on YouTube and you currently see uh, Dr. Erickson's beautiful kids, go ahead and and like the uh, video just for that (laughs) alone (laughs) and um, hit the subscribe button. And until next time, uh, we will see you soon. Sounds great. Well, thanks for having me so much on the podcast and thanks everybody for listening. Again, I told you all this episode was fire. I hope you all enjoyed it. Dr. Harrison did a great job breaking down UCL tears. We talked about anatomy. We talked about physical exams, history. I mean, I mean he really did a great job. So if, again, this is your first time, hit the subscribe button. If this is your returning time, share this with one other person and go and subscribe on YouTube. That's what we really would love for you to do. Subscribe on YouTube and follow us on our social media pages at Nailed It Ortho. And we will see you all again for the next episode.